Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. Today's guest name is Eric Huberman. Eric is On the Forbes 30 Under 30, he has sold multiple companies and he is the current owner of Hawk Media, which is an outsourced marketing company that Eric started three years ago with seven employees and has scaled it to 150 employees and works with some of the biggest brands like Red Bull. Eric has been addicted to growth since his early childhood and has been applying his passion and addiction in extremely beneficial ways with his couple companies that he's sold and then for his current clients. Eric also is a co-founder of Arrowroot Capital and they have 27 companies in their portfolio that they invest in. On today's episode, Eric and I talk about how to build a sustainable business that's profitable, that has options to sell whenever you want. Also, we talk about what are the strategic valuations that venture capitalists and angel investors look at and how to actually come to a valuation if you're looking to raise money and partner with a company like Arrowhead Capital. Eric explains the three pillars of marketing and how a lot of the companies, regardless of the industry or the maturity, have to make some decisions about where they're missing the mark in digital marketing and online sales, and then how to put fuel behind that to hit the growth projections that they need to eventually have those exit options that you want. I really hope you enjoy this episode with Eric. He shares a lot of different wisdom through the ventures that he's in and the exits that he's been a part of. So without further ado, here's my interview with Eric. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by The Valley Advantage. The Valley Advantage is a platform delivered via peer groups and or one-on-one to help you build a valuable company that can thrive without you while putting an exit plan in place so you have the options to sell when you want, to who you want, for how much you want. You're able to manage the business by the numbers, work in the business as much or as little as you want, and you fully understand how the business impacts your personal financials. If you want to know more, check out the show notes or the website. Good morning, Eric. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Doing good. I'm really looking forward to having you on the show. You've done a lot of stuff at your age, and I'm looking forward to kind of hearing the uh, the different steps throughout your journey. For our listeners, can you go back to the first time that you really decided to jump in and become an entrepreneur? <laughs> um, yeah, there's a couple. I don't know which one counts, so to speak. I, you know, I don't know where the official tally is, but when I was a little kid, my dad actually yeah, to his credit, got me hooked on the idea of like building wealth. Like actually, like he'd get me excited about the idea of like owning a fifty dollar bill and owning a hundred dollar bill, not to buy anything, just to like intrinsic value. And I actually got super hooked to like finding change and stuff to actually get up to that point. So what I ended up doing when I was six was taking a bunch of my parents' things, throwing it in a trash bag, and trying to sell my parents' stuff door to door. That's awesome. <laughs> For this, like, I didn't have it. I didn't understand the part where money actually then pays for something. It was just like I'm supposed to make money. And then when I was eight, uh, I wanted an electric guitar, and I asked my dad if I could get an electric guitar because my name's Eric. The only other Eric I knew was Eric Clapton, and so I needed to be a guitarist. And he, I so I said, Dad, I want an electric guitar, and his response was, Good, get a fucking job. So, <laughs> uh, not being able to get a job at eight years old, I actually started buying and selling Beanie Babies to make money. Um, right in the middle of the Beanie Baby craze and had no like actual passion for Beanie Babies, just saw an opportunity and ended up making a few thousand dollars at eight years old, bought the guitar, bought a BMX, 
save some money for a car. It was pretty fun. That's awesome. I, uh, would, I've got two twin year old girls, uh, and we just found our huge stash of beanie babies. So that's really funny. <laughs> you just brought that up. And then I saw yep. you also, uh, were selling Cutco. I used to, uh, sell a little bit of knives back in the day as well. Nice. Yeah. That was, that was actually like in, in terms of hiring people, like if I can find people that have Cutco experience, like it's a no brainer. We have a few employees, like it's just, you, there's actually a tangible difference and it's kind of insane. Yeah, they, they definitely put the, the training to a whole different level. So yeah. how did you go from the, the, you know, the different little journeys that you were talking about there into actually a full-fledged operational business? Uh, I had a few and it kind of, it, it's funny, like it, it kind of progressed slowly. Like, so I've had five actual businesses, like filed corporations, did it officially, you know, raised money sometimes or not, but had real businesses. And the first one was when I was the summer of my junior year in college, my friend found that the state of California had passed a law that you had to filter your storm drains and no one was doing it. So he came up with this idea, but needed someone that understood marketing and sales to help him. I had just broken a bunch of records with Cutco, as you mentioned it. So he's like, hey, you get sales, like come help me build this. So that was the first. But the thing is, like I did it for this. We weren't sure if I was going to drop out of school my senior year or go back or what. So did it for the summer and then frankly realized I didn't want to filter storm drains for the rest of my life. And so went back to school. But I, you know, what I'm highlighting is I kind of dipped my toe into entrepreneurship there uh, along with along the way, had other little entrepreneurial endeavors. And then when I got out of college, I actually went into real estate full time for a year, but started a week before the entire banking industry collapsed. So I was a commercial real estate agent. So I was the first. (laughs) And it was still entrepreneurial. Like I still had my, you know, I didn't make any money unless I sold something. I still, I kept my own hours. My manager kind of was there more as a guide than acting a traditional manager, but because he didn't actually pay me anything, but it was still like enough structure, I think, that when I went off a year later to start, or I, I started working on a side project at six months later, but a year later, I left to really go pursue my first e-commerce company. I already had a bunch of disciplines and a bunch of things that were guided so that I could really go full-fledged. And then from there, uh, I've had three e-commerce companies and then and now Hawk Media. So... And what I, what I love about your background is you, you've got kind of two sides of the coin of really growth acceleration and then also the exits too, because I think they kind of go hand in hand. A lot of entrepreneurs, they just chase revenue and growth for growth sake, but then you have also gone through these exits. So maybe let's, let's focus maybe on the growth too, because you've got, I mean, which is what you're doing with Hawk Media too, is how are you finding opportunities and then lighting the fire behind growing these companies at the rate that you have? Because with the swag of the month, you, I mean, you, you've really put some numbers behind when your, your uh, companies that you've started. So what are some of the things that you're doing to accelerate the growth? Um, I would say a few things. One is just I, I have like almost an addiction to growth that it's like I, I like growing things. It's, it's similar to like the six year old running around selling things out of my parents. It wasn't it's not like about the money. And that's a very you know, high class kind of statement to make, but it really isn't like once, you know, there's all those studies. Once you make 70 grand a year, mm-hmm. your, your, your happiness and your stress goes away. So, you know, really after a, a six figure paycheck, you really, it's not about the money. It's about, you know, something inherent, something that drives growth. And for me, like I always really cared about that. So I always focused on it and through focusing on it, I, you know, became pretty good at it. So it's like, I always was looking for how do I grow this faster? As opposed to a lot of other people have different priorities in their business, but I always I always wanted scalability and growth, and so I was able to achieve it by find you know I throw tons of things at a wall 
And I got this advice early on from a guy named Chris Nella, who ran acquisition marketing for Shoe Dazzle, Gamefly, Soul Society, TradeZ, and now Thrive Market. He's been he's quite a resume. And he gave me advice when I was first starting my se- Swag of the Month, my second e-commerce company. And he's like, yeah, marketing is just trying a bunch of shit and then doubling down when it, where it works. Like You just have to test all the time. And actually set up the framework to test properly. But that's really it. So... So what uh, are some of the things that, cause you know, I, I've been following like the digital marketer, all the different people that are, um, you got the, a lot of traditional businesses getting into e-commerce or have a nice little hybrid of bo- both, you know, what I think every, everybody's doing exactly what you're saying, which is trying a bunch of shit as they're trying to figure out how to, how to scale their companies and grow. Yeah. What are some of the things that you have seen in your, your different ventures that have really stuck and that have been now then integrated into your process to keep scaling? You know, it's been it's been negatives and positives with each one. Like, you know, the I would say, you know, like I learned my first company, we, we targeted independent musicians and helped them and did one-on-one business coaching to help them grow. And it was a great product. We had a bunch of success stories. But at the end of the day, having independent artists who are usually struggling for money as a customer was terrible. So I learned like, <laughs> don't have, like really, you know, you do in some ways you don't pick your customer and in some ways you do. And like, just make sure you're setting yourself up for success there. And then... Uh, swag of the month, I learned all the problems of scalability and why, you know, unit economics are, I already knew were important, but still there's a level of scale you have to get to before those unit economics plans come into play. We were, it was a $17 subscription company. So even if our profit was $10 a person, $10 doesn't go very far. So we needed a lot of customers for it to mean anything. And so that was another, you know, lesson that I really took with me. And then with uh, Ellie, the last company, it really came down to, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. With Ellie, it came down to like they, they gave me a large budget, frankly, and I got to try everything. So I actually really learned how to manage a really large marketing budget. I had $2 million in, with a brand new company, and they're like, go, do whatever you want. And so I'd used to be, you know, I was used to being scrappy and then got to just, you know, take off. It's like a, a nice little kid in a candy shop experiment. Yeah, much. So, you know, you know, as you're, as you're putting some of the, I mean, literally rocket fuel behind the marketing of these things, you know, the biggest challenge is, is also growing intrinsic value because you've exited these companies as well. So is there certain things that you saw through these journeys that were very valuable when you actually came to the exit along with going through them while you own the current company? Wait, sorry, can you repeat that question? So, you know, as you're, as you're scaling these businesses and as you're growing and, and your, your revenues are going up that, that far, when, you, when you're putting the dollars behind these different marketing tactics, was there yeah. certain things that you were putting in the operational or like automating or repeating that when you, you saw the value when you ended up selling the business because of the ease, the ease of transferability or of repeatability? Um, you know, it's funny, like, yes, we had certain things that we had repeated, repeatable, but that's not usually why people bought my businesses. The two businesses I sold were more for brand and customer base than processes and repeatability. So well, let's, let's peel, peel that back a little bit. So what's that? I said, sure. Yeah. So, you know, when you say that, first of all, were you scaling these with the end in mind, knowing who your potential exits might be? And then what was your thought process around the timing and where you were going to eventually go with the business? Kind of what was the triggering event and kind of give us a little bit of a narrative around the exits? Sure. So yeah, that's the irony is no, I I actually never built a business with the intent of selling. I always know it's an option, but uh, you know, don't really aim for that because 
you can build a sustainable business on your own that works, you can sell it. You know what I mean? Like there's there's definitely a lot of businesses that don't build a sustainable business and sell, but I don't really like that game. It's not really for me. So um yeah, I mean the the first business I sold, Swag of the Month, we actually we're almost in a position where we had to sell. We we got to a point where back to that scalability point, it was tough. We we even at, you know, when we had a bunch of subscribers and it was working and making good money, after all was said and done on expenses and, you know, covering our own bills, et cetera, there wasn't a lot left over. And so it was really hard to hire people to scale the business. So we learned the reason why people raise money, frankly. And so we got to the point where it was like we can either raise money, sell the thing, or shut it down because we can't we couldn't perpetuate what we were doing off its own cash flow. And so I actually took a me- got a meeting with a guy named Howard Morgan, who was uh, one of the founders of First Round Capital, which frankly, he's like a legend in the venture capital world. I didn't know any of this. I didn't know anything about VC. And so I met with him and he thought it was a great idea, but he had just invested within this company called Fab.com, which if you don't know, ended up being a huge disaster in the VC world. But he, he said he couldn't uh, invest because of it. And the guy has been incredibly successful. I don't want to mean that wasn't meant to be demeaning. But um, so I thought that like I didn't there weren't all these podcasts talking about venture capital or selling your business. I didn't know much about it. But I <laughs> at that point, I was like, well, I met the VC. He said no. So I guess we're moving on. There's no other VCs out. You know what I mean? Like it was mm-hmm. like you reach out to 50, 100 VCs. So that <laughs> right. Just like the Coco so I, days, right? <laughs> yeah. It, it was just like, yeah, it's done. Okay, next. And so I moved on. And so then it was seller shut down. And right then, um, actually a contact of mine reached out out of the blue and said, hey, I don't know if you're interested in selling your business, but if you are, I'd like to talk about it. And it was like just you know serendipitous. I took a meeting, told her how much we wanted for it. And she wrote a check on the spot and bought the business. Did you think that you didn't ask enough? I mean, that's definitely a case, but I was always ha- also happy with it. You know what I mean? Like I could have gotten more, obviously. When someone goes, I go, this is how much. And they go, yeah, okay, here's a check. It's like, oops. But at the same time, like I don't regret it. I, I was you know, in a position where I had a- other things I wanted to move on to. It actually you know, was a- nice enough. And again, we didn't have a lot of options. Like it was in a tough place, so... So, you know, from sitting down with Howard Morgan, um, did you have any conversations about how he would have valued the business? And then how did you come up with that number when you eventually sold it? Because did you use any tidbits that you learned from Howard on that call? Or did you, you know, where were you getting your number from? Uh, you know, it was, let me actually, I can't remember the number we used, to be honest, but I think I might have it somewhere. Um, so I'm, I'm literally on my computer looking for the number, but it's the same. But with him, we actually didn't get that far. We talked more about the business. And he, uh, he looked over everything. He did look over our deck, which I'm trying to remember. I'm looking at it now. Yeah, so we had numbers. So yeah, we were trying to raise a million dollars, but I don't think we established a valuation. Got it. Got it. Got it. So then when you came up with a number as you were actually selling it to the buyer, was it, was it a number that you had just you know, pulled out of the air to figure out what you could go on and do something else? Or was there like, did you have like a multiple of EBITDA or revenue or anything? Um, we had, no, no, again, there was no valuation. It was, this was like, we had no idea what we were doing with BC. It was like, I need a million dollars. We'll just mm-hmm. go yep. with that. So as you, so with Swag of the Month and then Ellie, and then now what you're doing with Hawk is that you are also an investor, correct? Correct. So how have your, how has your mindset changed and how you value companies? And, you know, when you're looking for value, what is it that you're looking at? Is it cash flow? Is it niche in a niche? Is it some sort of IP? 
So it's, what's that? It's a strategic advantage. Okay. It's why are these guys going to beat everyone else out? And, you know, I've heard it talked about more and more, but I was always surprised early on when I got into investing that this didn't come up a lot. It's like, why are these people going to succeed? Like, and it, what unfair advantage do they have? Because if someone's just starting a business because they have a good idea, like, good luck. Like, you have to have something that will propel you past everyone else because you have something so solid as far as strategic. It just, you can't lose. That's what I look for. And a lot of times, or I look for where can we be that acceleration? Like, you know, we've got about 170 active clients. Is it a software that all of our clients can use? Those kind of things so that we can become that unfair advantage is also an option. That, interesting. So uh, let's go back to the first point you're making. So this, this unfair advantage, what are some of the examples that you've seen that have given you the confidence that you need? Uh, let's see. I mean, FabFitFun is a good example and it worked. Uh, it was one, that was my first angel investment. They're a, so FabFitFun's an e-commerce subscription box. This year, they'll do about $150 million profitably. Um, and they've only raised $6 million. Wow. Just to give an idea. So uh, with them, they started as an email newsletter. So they had a huge, huge email list um, before they ever launched e-commerce. So, and they raised for the e-commerce business. So when they went to launch it, it's like, yeah, they have every customer already in their database. They just need to mine that database. Like that's an unfair advantage. Got it. You know, that's competing with that. So um, how are you, yeah, you know, if, if you're taking a company like that, that you're investing in, how are you looking at the value that you would pay for? Because obviously you're looking for the unfair advantage. Do you, do the people usually know it, the sellers or the, uh, the people looking to raise money? And then how do you place a valuation on that strategic investment or acquisition? Yeah, I actually don't play any games in terms of valuation with entrepreneurs. Like I want someone smarter than me. Like my currently on paper, my best investment is a less than one year old business. I can't talk about it because they want to stay stealth, but they'll, it looks like they're going to do about $55 million in their first year. Uh, and th this is that like, they already, they've already cash flowed like 20 and they've got oh. a ways to go. So like, this is, it's a, you know, and, and the, the entrepreneur in it is honestly brilliant. And so like, I didn't play games with evaluation. We came to a deal we're both happy with. And to this day, like you, you know, we, we came into the deal, like we've made, I mean, I'd say in terms of our investment on that, like, I think we're at about, in one year, 30 times our investment. So like there could, there could be a kind of a tendency to look into our pocket as an entrepreneur and be like, I just made you 30 times your money in a year, like you are overpaid. But he, because we set up the deal in a way that was so fair and we didn't argue anything, he's totally happy. He's like, good job. You got it. You bet on me early. We worked with, you know, that he's excited. So that's awesome. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. So yeah. when you're because I think, you know, the, the reason I'm kind of peeling into the, the deal structures and the terms and the valuations is because it's so different when you've got a, a mature business that's been kind of clipping away at the 5 to 7% increase and you're looking at the EBITDA and there's even a multiple or discounted cash flow versus the strategic value uh, valuation is so different because it's a synergies of partnerships and people and talent. And then so the 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 valuation or how you come to that, I think is a complicated situation. I've got a friend that is looking for, um, to raise some money right now too. And it's kind of this, you know, there's not a whole lot of playbooks around it because it comes down to negotiation. But so as far as the valuations, that's why I was kind of going into that, but then also the deal structure. So what are the, the typical ways that you've seen, whether when you were selling your companies or you're now you're investing that you're structuring these deals so whether it's a ownership percentage or board seats, like kind of give us a little bit of rundown of the dynamics that you end up setting up. Yeah. So what we've done, so to, one thing is we, so we've got 27 portfolio companies here. 
And some of those are straight check investments as an angel investor. Some of those are hybrid services, equity, cash deals. Um, you know, sometimes they're advisory positions. And we've actually built a team here around servicing those so that we can give them, again, it's all about that unfair advantage. We wanted to give them an unfair advantage. So we haven't actually taken a, a board seat, an official board seat, but we honestly influence the, the company so much it, because of what we have access to as a, as a you know, Hawk Media, 115 people here running marketing for hundreds of brands. Like we can do a lot for com- these companies that they, they let us have a lot of influence and no matter what. And we have a full team that is dedicated to that that can put in the time versus like in venture capital, like you, you, you're not making enough cash flow to have like teams dedicated to these things for us. We're actually taking a piece of the overall revenue of Hawk Media to hire a team to, you know, service these because we see it as kind of the high risk, high reward side of our business. That's, that's super interesting because, it, I, you know, that's one of the biggest, um, biggest things that I have seen that when you have successful uh, transactions like that, where it's not just about the money, it's about the leverage and the skill sets and the network, because that's where the value actually happens versus just having someone that's going to fund you and then sit there and dictate and, you know, micromanage you. Uh, so explain a little bit, cause I think it's very interesting of how you've leveraged Hawk Media and these portfolio companies. Can you shed some light about how the dynamics and the relationships work? Yeah. So basically it depends, obviously it depends on the business. Certain businesses we actually are pretty passive with like FabFitFun at this point is like a quarterly, you know, bi-monthly to quarterly meeting to catch up and talk about strategies, but they've got an amazing team over there. They don't need a lot from us. Um, But then there's other companies that are earlier stage that we come in and basically take over a big chunk of their marketing department or the whole thing in exchange for parts ownership and, you know, sometimes part cash. Um, and then there's, a, you know, the third piece, which is investing and then coming on as an active advisor as well. And actually even a fourth piece where we're, je- we're not necessarily running their marketing, but we are acting as an advisor for equity. So again, we have all these, these four kind of different positions. And with each one, you know, we try to just bring our network, our connections, our clients, our, you know, knowledge, everything we can to make it a better company. I like it. And I think if maybe before we I, I go into a couple more questions is, can you explain exactly what your services are at Hawk Media? Because I think the tie of what you've successfully done and how your growth associated with Hawk Media and what the, the practices that you apply for your customers allows other, regardless of the industry, scale up. Because I think in today's world, I mean, every client that I have, or everybody that I talk to, growing their company is the biggest challenge because I mean, I came from the copier and IT services world, Eric, where like it was the old Cutco model of, you know, telemarketing, knocking on doors, which just doesn't work anymore. So I think, you know, what you're doing, it's scalable because you've got the business and the infrastructure, and then you can also apply it to various industries. But so yeah, give us a little bit of a backdrop on exactly Hawk Media and what the practices are that you're doing that are working so well across these industries. Yeah. So after all of those e-commerce companies, I mentioned the three, um, after I sold the last one, I started advising and consulting for a bunch of brands and kept running into the same challenges that I ran in with my own, which is when it came time to execute, it's tough because there's two options. It's hire an in-house team or hire an agency. What I found was hiring in-house isn't cost-effective, and that's if you can find the talent. But on the agency side, it seems like 98% of agencies have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> Maybe 99. <laughs> Just to be real. Everyone, yeah, exactly. Everyone, everyone's experienced this. It's like, <laughs> I'm not I'm preaching to the choir. But, and then the few that are good, though, tend to be really expensive or want long contracts or have some other barrier they put up that make them hard to work with. So I got sick of it, decided to hire my own team. We started with seven people. 
an email marketer, Facebook search, influencer, affiliate, web design, and overall strategy. I went back to these companies and said, everything's a la carte, month to month, cheaper than hiring in-house. But basically, we can spin up a team that fits your needs based on this menu of services. So that's how we started. Fast forward, it's been three and a half years. We've grown from seven to about 115 people. You know, Our services have obviously expanded quite a bit. But it's just, yeah, this idea of like, we'll go into a company, identify either holes in their expertise or bandwidth, and then spin up with people you know, overnight that can actually take that piece over. Well, and I think it's something that really a lot of entrepreneurs ch- are challenged with because, I mean, in order to exit and actually get the top dollar from your for your company, you, you need to be growing at a predictable, successful rate. And I think a lot of people are just running into walls constantly, whether it's, you know, digital marketing or like, I mean, it's the whole combo of all the things that you have to do to be out there these days to keep the growth coming in. Because I believe that you, a lot of people do have a competitive idea or a specific skill set, but they have no idea how to get their voice out. Yeah. So you've got you've got the uh, Hawk Media and the infrastructure. Then, so is there certain industries that you're applying and looking for out of these 27 portfolio companies, or the ones that you're looking at down the road? You know, what kind of industries, what kind of unfair advantages are you looking for? Um, again, it's it's either a distribution channel, it's expertise that don't exist other places, it's you know, some infrastructure that's already being built or leveraged for this business. In terms of unfair advantages, there's a lot different, a lot of different ways that can manifest. And yeah, it, it just really depends. As far as, you know, what we look at, it's either companies that we know how to grow or it's three, I guess we have three investment criteria or uh, channels, so to speak. Companies that we know we can grow using our platform, companies that are good for our clients. So, you know, software companies, things like that, that we can utilize. And then the third one's just opportunistic. We trust, we like the team, we like what they're doing, and we're just going to come in as a partner just because there's something there. And so the third one's a little harder. I think that's going to be where we probably lose some money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, the other two, risk. Yeah, yeah, it's worth the risk. And like we hope for the best, and it's fun too. But like they're the ones that like we just think there's something there, and these people are super smart, and we got asked to come in and you know into the round. But it's not necessarily anything we can affect which is harder to justify. Right, right. Uh, are there any of these portfolio companies that you guys have gone through the exits with together with the people that have fallen into the companies? No, because our, our first investment, I think, is only two years old. We haven't gotten to the point of exits yet. We've gotten the, plenty of raised money, like new rounds and stuff like that, but none have actually exited because we're getting in early. We haven't invested in any late stage companies. So explain a little bit of the process that you've gone through now as because you're you're providing some uh, funds, but then also if you're going out and helping people raise some funds, what are some of the, you know, the couple main takeaways that you've seen that have worked really well and some that have not worked very well? Um, in terms of raising money, I, I just I'm always cautious with people about raising money. Like, that's why I quote Fab for Fun. Like, I think it's incredible that the guys raised six million dollars and then just built a profitable business and they're at one hundred and fifty million in revenue. Like. You know, I understand that at some point a lot of companies have to, but because I've been there, but avoid it at all costs. And you know, there's a, there's just it, there's a lot of complicated ways to do it, and just depending on what you're dealing with, like you may want to uh, try to think of examples. Like sometimes you may want to take on debt. Sometimes you may want to take on equity financing. The right VC or the right investor makes the difference. Like you know, if you're going to take money from someone, hope that they're strategic. Like don't just take money because a guy has money. And generally, even on the other side, if someone just wants to take your money because it's money, that's worrisome. Like that means that they're not thinking about this, you know, in mm-hmm. a, a complex enough way to really. And that worries me about how they think about their business in general. Like there's a lot of 
things that come to play here. So when you're when you're doing that and you, you you've been part of these these situations, I mean, how are you actually getting down to the valuation? I mean, because hopefully some of them are you know are running sustainable businesses where they got cash flow and not just an idea. But I mean, yep. how do you get to a point where you're, you know, figuring out whether it is debt, whether it is, you know, what in one of your four roles to coming up with that valuation to say, okay, here's exactly what the money's going to be and here's what it's going to be used for. And then here's the chunk, here's what we're going to need in return. You know, with, because again, the deals we're doing are early stage. Usually it's just a conversation. It's, it's just, it, it's, there's no, if anyone tries to claim that there's a science to valuation in the venture world, they're full of shit. I mean, it's, you know, you, and I can say that by looking at the valuations companies get. Private equity is a whole different world. That's valued off, you know, usually trailing 12 months cash flow. And that's that's the way you do it. But you can't really do that in venture because it's also the upside and what you think. So it's usually just a conversation of what makes sense based on what they have and what work's been put in and whether what's been invested already, et cetera. And then we just talk it out and decide what we feel good about. It's 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 kind of a gut check. Yeah, you know, no, I would agree with you on that one. And I, I, like you said, I think people think that there should be a science to it, but it's really not. Well, there can't be because like, that's the thing about ventures, like some companies you invest, I invested in one company that, you know, frankly, that, you know, if things go well, they could maybe sell for 15, 20 million. It's not going to be a massive business, but you know, they're raising 300 K at like a $2 million valuation. And we hope in a year to sell for like 15, like that's okay. Then there's Mm -hmm. other companies. Like we just invested in another company at a $12 million valuation, but it's the company, you know, we, we, uh, would invested in our pro rata on that company that's going to do 55 million this year. So they have a, they just finished around at 12 million and again, they're going to do 55 million this year. It was like, yeah, no brainer. Like, you know, they haven't done it yet, so they can't raise against that. Mm-hmm. But that's we I'm I'm very involved in the business. I'm confident in the CEO, so I wasn't worried about it. So again, it's the valuations are all over the place just depending on what's going on with the business. Yep. So, so when you're getting out, let's say the transaction's complete and you guys are now, you know, one of your four roles and you're looking at it. As far as the marketing, the growth side, what are the ways that you go in to assess what they've got going on? And then where do you focus on first? Yeah. So it's, if we focus on whatever is missing. So we look at marketing in three pillars. There's, you know, nurturing awareness and trust, meaning like awareness is like advertising, like get your brand out there. Nurturing is what do you do to, you know, take that awareness and turn it into a sale and then trust. You know, 75% of people say the most important, and this is an Edelman study, say the most important factor in a purchase decision is trust. So building that trust through press, third-party validation, influencer marketing, things like that. So what we do is we go in and assess, do they have everything, you know, all their bases covered and to what degree and where should we focus on? So that, that's that marketing piece of how we, we, you know, we'll look at Google Analytics, we'll talk to the, you know, either CMO, CEO, or whoever's running marketing, et cetera, and we'll go from there. How many people that you interact with or, or come across are actually doing these things correctly? A hundred percent. Very, very few. There are, they exist, but it's, you know, been a handful in the four years I've been doing, almost four years I've been doing this. Where, where are the, where are the biggest gaps do you think, uh, as far as like where of those three pillars that where are people usually missing the, the most? Usually it's the nurturing piece. Usually people think that they get press and they get awareness out there. So that's kind of trust and awareness. And then people just buy. But without reminding people, like in sales, like follow up is the key and they talk about it all the time. But they, you know, in uh in marketing, people forget that piece. And and when you're talking nurturing, it's a combination of email marketing, follow-ups with I mean, is it is it individual like 
like phone calls or is it email marketing or is it, you know, the automated uh, webinars? What I mean, what are some of the technical things that in the nurturing that you've seen that have capitalized on the awareness and trust that people have built? Is it email marketing? Is it yeah, phone email. calls, follows or what is it? No, 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 no. Like you're, we're talking about consumer businesses. You can't, phone calls are tough. It's email marketing. It's re retargeting. Even Facebook Messenger and chatbots have been a good one now. It's all the like, you know, ongoing communication while someone's trying to make a purchase decision. That's the nurturing piece. Is there any industries? Because you know, with our listeners, we got a combo of um, some young entrepreneurs like you and I, and then also a combination of some baby boomers and that have had some traditional businesses in the the you know main street service businesses. Is there things that you've seen that you know that? They're not because let's put it this way. Let me rephrase my question is like an HVAC business or someone that's in the service business or manufacturing. I, I don't see them doing a lot of this. And I think they're missing the boat because they have this unfair advantage or they built a sustainable business and applying this stuff. I think the opportunities are huge and understanding, you know, where do you start? Because I think that's where the, the to accelerate the growth and, and sell it for a dollar that they want. I mean, they have to be moving into this realm. And I, and I don't even think they understand where to start. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's basically why our business has grown so fast. Like we're, you know, we used to talk about like one of the lines we used to use is we're kind of the navigator of the digital world. Like it's hard. It's not like, it's like being like, you know, that's like me coming in and saying like, okay, I want to start a, a hardware manufacturing business for auto parts. Where do I start? It's like, uh, I don't know, read a lot. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's a hard thing. It's a whole business. And that's what we actually run into. We've worked with a lot of manufacturers and traditional businesses um, on getting into digital. And it's, it's starting a new business. And I articulate that to them every time now is like, be very aware, like what you're asking me to do for you is to start you a new business. So it's not an easy, straightforward thing. That's interesting because I think that the challenge that a lot of these, uh, you know, mature businesses have is, is it worth to start this new business or is it worth to just sell it? Because I think you have to double down and it's new operations, it's new talent, it's having that hybrid of now you're selling online and you've got a presence online. So, you know, I, I don't even know exactly what my question would be because I think it's trying to determine, is it worth starting this new business? Is it worth the effort? And then who's the champion internally? Because I think a lot of the, a lot of entrepreneurs, it's not them and they don't necessarily want to be. Yeah, it's, again, it's like, it just depends on what your desire is. I mean, and it's hard to have someone internally to champion it. Like that's, that's what I kept running into is hiring people internally. Like if you're not a sexy startup, like, you know, dollar shape, now it's not anymore, but at the time, like dollar shape club, honest company, like these kind of companies, they can attract anyone. But if you're like what I was doing with was like um, my one of my first clients was a manufacturer out in East LA that like in the middle of nowhere with no place for lunch like it was just like you know warehouse you know yep. desert like it just sucked and good luck trying to attract a really talented marketer out there for anything less than double what they're usually paid which is already obscene if they're a good marketer because good marketer can make their own money or they're not very good. So yeah, it just, it, it becomes very hard. That's really where the impetus of our, my business model came from was like, that was hard and I couldn't find agencies that were any better. So like, I just started my own. Like that's, that is, I never planned on building an agency like this. I actually, at the time was building a tea company, uh, like a drinking tea company oh, really? that's on my shelf that I shut down. Crazy. And I, I totally agree because there's a, a couple companies like yours that have really blown up and it, explain what it's like to start that engagement with you. Cause I think there's, let's, like you said, so many people have been burned by agencies and then so many people don't even know 
like what do you google on indeed and just to say hey marketing specialist and they don't need like there's like so many different talents you got 150 people with different talents how do you you know once you do this kind of assessment of what it is that you want where do you start with the skill sets you know and like if you were to go yep. to that manufacturer or something like how do you start like what are you know plan a through you know c you know, as far as this is something i've learned myself too is Depends on your business, but with what we're talking about, because it sounds like we're talking about companies already in a later stage. At that point, you don't hire young, scrappy people. Like I love the whole. It, it's st- people still hire like their daughter because she has a Facebook or son. It's not a sexist thing, but you know their yep. kid because they have a Facebook to come and run social media. Like no, no, no. And what I've learned, like a really good small basic tip on hiring. Once you're at a point where you need to hire for people to do, you know, do something, not to learn on your time. Which is certain, you know, a getting when you're getting into a mid-stage business, you want to hire pe- people that have already done what you're looking to ha- do. You don't want people to learn. You don't want someone that's got a resume that says they have 10 years digital marketing experience. You have to set up a goal and find someone that's hit that goal already. It's mm-hmm. like if you want to have a Super Bowl winning team, hire you know hire someone that's been to the Super Bowl and won. If you want to you know get to a 50 million dollar business through marketing. Find someone that's marketed a business and grown it to fifty million dollars. Like it's like, get that person. It's worth paying for if they're good. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. And because I think you, you nailed it when you say people. So many people have people learn on their dollar, and they're they're trying to. You know, there's this biggest connection of like you said. They're probably building awareness or trust. And whether it's the people you're investing in or or a late stage business, people have something to say and they've got something that's worth a value, but getting that voice out into the world is challenging. They're the biggest, uh, I think, you know, the biggest false notion now is that you can't track it because you can, like you, like you said, you can actually put this and show the return on investment. If you've, if you got it set up correctly. Yeah. So as we're kind of wrapping up, I know because we're short on time, Eric, what, what are some of the biggest, you know, if there's something you want to highlight or if there's a if there's a takeaway for our listeners as far as growth and exits and valuations, you know, what are some of the, it, it, something you want to highlight or leave us, our listeners with? Um, I would say at the end of the day, don't focus on the sale and you'll get it. Like, I, and I really believe that. I've watched companies that, don't get me wrong, like those companies that, you know, push the limits, grow as fast as they can, burn through cash and sell before they fail. But like before you do that, like building a sustainable business, then you have options. Like we've been offered to sell this company, Hawk Media, like seven, eight times seriously, and probably, you know, 30 times not seriously. And in that process, like we've realized we don't really want to sell. Like, don't get me wrong, if an obscene, crazy number that everyone in Hawk Media is going to be rich off of comes through the door, sure. I'm not going to say never, but in terms of market valuation, I have no desire to sell right now. So what you know, it's like and I have that option. I don't have to sell. It's a profitable, sustainable business. So it's really nice to like build a business that way and then decide later what you want to do. But don't build to sell. I, I actually don't like that way of doing things. So let's get let's get your definition of a sustainable business. Profitable. <laughs> At a level that you can have a little cushion too in case mistakes happen and hiccups, et cetera. Like it's gotta be not just like you're making one percent profit. I mean like real profit. Like, you know. I don't know that margin's different with every business, but like something that can actually sustain if your business goes through a change or a hiccup, et cetera, you've got some a war chest you're building over time. And don't get me wrong, I know that Amazon's not profitable. I know that there's certain ways not to be profitable and reinvest, but Amazon could be profitable. So like it's it's a little nuanced there. And with you know, most businesses, that's the reason you start a business. Like there it's only the past 20 years 
that companies like there's the whole build to sell kind of mentality came to be. It was really in the late nineties with the first tech boom. But now, you know, people forget that like business is about making money. Like that's why you build a business, you know, it's maximizing profits. And there's a lot of other cool things you can do in terms of helping around the world and helping your employees and all that. But at the end of the day, you need to keep it sustainable. And so that's the most important part. No, I, I agree. And I just want to even reiterate too, because when you say build a sustainable, profitable business, I mean, you know, what we talk about a lot on the show is because the strategic acquisition or partnership is ideal for everybody because of the synergies and the people and the talent and the opportunities. But if you build a sustainable, profitable business, you like you said, you'll have options because any financial buyer will come in because you're continuously profitable. And then there's a there's a plethora of financial buyers out there. So if you can't hit your strategic sale, then you've got, like you said, tons of options. Yep, exactly. And that's that's the thing. It's just, it's just about not limiting your options. Like don't get stuck. I've watched friends get stuck in uh, having to sell when they don't want to. I've, that happened to me basically with Swag of the Month. Like I would have loved to keep running that business at the time. I'm happy that what, with the outcome. But, you know, it was just... we didn't have really any options. Now that we didn't even try to build a cell, but we hit a point. If you're not even keeping in mind unit economics or building a sustainable business, you're, it's, it gets rough. Eric, what is the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? You can always email me just e at awkmedia.com, the letter e at h-a-w-k-e media.com. And then it's just Eric Huberman on any social media channel slash or at. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your stories. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Eric. Loved how much we bounced around because I think all the topics we talked about are extremely important, whether it is raising the money or the valuations or building a sustainable business. But the three main takeaways that I had, I'm going to actually reverse it and say the three questions that I think every entrepreneur needs to answer for themselves to build a sustainable business are one, what is your unfair advantage? I think Eric highlighted that perfectly because Knowing why your business and why you have an unfair advantage over your competition is extremely important because you cannot leverage that unless you know that. And then the second question I think you need to answer is, how do you let the world know about your unfair advantage that you have and the unique competitive advantage that they will have if they leverage you and your services? And then how do you effectively and repeatedly fuel the growth behind that through a combination of digital marketing and sales that allow you to repeatedly see the growth that you need to because we all need to see that. We all need to get our voices out, but we need to focus and really put a plan in place around how we do that so that way we can see the repeatable increase in revenues and profit. And then the third question that I think entrepreneurs, we all need to answer is, how do you build a sustainable and profitable business that has options down the road? Because if you focus on the business and not work in the business, but focus on building this machine that can fuel growth and they can leverage your competitive advantage, then you will have options just by the nature of what you're doing on working on the machine and the business that you have created. So I really hope you enjoyed the interview with Eric. He had lots of good pieces of wisdom throughout the interview. And if you want to check anything out, look at the show notes. So until next week.